morning. Go ahead and grab a seat. It's good to see you and good morning and happy 4th of July. Um, I know we have a lot of people that are traveling and some that are watching online right now. Hope you have a great day today. Hope you get some time to relax a little bit later on. And it's kind of fitting that we're going through what we're going through on the 4th of July as we talk about the Declaration of Independence of this nation as well. Of course, their declaration is made by God as a sea stands up. We're talking about the Exodus story. So Israel has its own day of independence that's coming, and we're going to talk about that in weeks to follow. Um, but if you have a Bible, we're going to be in chapter 7 through 11 today. We're not going to read through all four chapters verse by verse, but this is going to be the part of the story that's going to be helpful for us today. And the one punchline verse that kind of stands out, that's going to hold it all together is in 11.10. It says, Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. That's going to be a theme that's going to run through these four chapters. Now last week, if you were here, we took a little bit of a look at the cross-section of what we called a crisis of belief. What it looks like when we step into life in those areas where we're obeying God or we see the activity of God and we join God and things go from bad to worse, right? And it just didn't turn out like we thought it was going to turn out. Of course, we also saw that those moments, those crises are where our faith is truly built, where our trust is deepened and anchored. Now what we did not look at last week is how whenever we are shaken in those crises moments, those, that crisis of belief, whenever we're shaken, that's also when some things are exposed. Like where we anchor our trust, where we put our hope, what we depend upon, where our affections are pinned to. We, we could call them small gods or small idols. And in a few weeks we're going to take a look at what an idol really is because Israel is going to build one out of all the collected gold that they could come together with. And it's, it's a cow. We build dumber things, right? We have uh, idols that are no more impressive than that. But what we find out is when we're in a crisis, we start detoxing. The things that we were used to getting, the things that were bringing us meaning and significance are now pulled away. And that's why the crisis is a crisis. So the big question for us today as we float through these chapters is, who or what are we really, I mean really, tempted to worship, tempted to serve, tempted to glorify as God in our lives? I mean, let's face it, you're all here. So I assume, maybe I shouldn't, but I, I do, I assume that we all are here to worship God. If you're watching online, if you've made it this far and you realize this is a church service or a church gathering, I assume that you're going to keep watching because you are worshiping God. I mean, we're going to sing a little bit later. I'm, I'm assuming you're not going to sing to Molech or Lucifer or a bag of mushrooms or something like that. We're all here for the same reason. But because of how you and I are wound together, we have this proclivity of taking all of our deepest affections and pinning them on a thing or a person to deliver this deep sense of significance and meaning and happiness to us. And when those things are threatened, we feel a crisis. We feel pain, and we call these, like I said, small gods or idols. So now in our story today, when we go through 7 through 11, Moses and Aaron are going to go before the most powerful man on earth at the time and demand the release of his slave economy, right? So what they're going to do is they're going to go, they're going to state God's intentions, God's going to show his power, 
and then Pharaoh's going to harden his heart. And it's kind of odd how that happens, how his heart can remain so dark and cold and hard. But it does. And here's the thing, none of this surprises God. In fact, God himself hardened the heart of Pharaoh. You'll read it over and over again, right? Now let's just look at this for a moment. This is something that we trip on as we read through the Bible. It's going to say in your Bible over 16 times that Pharaoh had a hard heart. About half of those times it's going to show that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. The other half, the Bible clearly, clearly says that God hardened his heart. So what's going on there? How can that be? Paul explains it a little bit to the Roman church. He says in Romans 9, stay where you're at in Exodus. He says in 9, verse 17, for the scriptures say to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, God says, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whom he ha- whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. So what God does is he literally custom fit Pharaoh for destruction. He made him for destruction. Yet Pharaoh was also responsible for his own choices. And both of those statements are true at the same time, right? Both of them true at the exact same time. Pharaoh was not forced to do anything against his own will any more than you are. Any more than you are. Think about it. All the decisions that you make I mean, listen, I was thinking about this yesterday. I was eating with some friends at a food truck, and they tried to serve me coleslaw. And I said, please do not. I hate coleslaw. When I say I hate it, I don't want anything. I would rather eat a bowl of dirt. I thought if, you, if I had to choose between a bowl of dirt and coleslaw, totally choosing the dirt. I don't like it. I choose not to like it. I will eat anything instead. I said I'll pay extra for it. Now, here's the thing. God made me the way he made me, okay, just like you. I hate some of the things I hate. I don't remember making a conscious decision to hate those things, so part of it might be genetics. Maybe I had a bad experience with coleslaw growing up. Who knows? Maybe it's just my preferences. I just don't like coleslaw, so I never eat it. But I don't ever feel compelled to eat green beans or okra or anything like that. I just make the decision I make. I'm, I, we're, we're all influenced in the decisions that we make. I think what we do whenever we look at decision making, and I think this is about the best time to bring it up anywhere in the Bible that you're going to see something like this, we, we imagine ourselves making uninhibited, uninfluenced decisions, like we're in a vacuum. Like you could choose cherry pie or apple pie, doesn't even really matter. But it does. You do choose one over the other, don't you? What is helping you make that decision? A preference. A preference is influencing your decision. There's no such thing as an uninfluenced decision. We don't make decisions in a vacuum. Your history helps you make decisions. Your your, your genetics, your mood, your lack of sleep, all kinds of things influence your decision making. And yet you're responsible for your decisions. And yet you were free to make the decision that you made. There is no such thing as an uninfluenced decision. Pharaoh here had an unresponsive, cold heart. He saw the same signs and miracles and plagues that everybody else saw, yet he decided on his own not to repent and not to believe God. He decided on his own. I'll even add here that it was God's revelation that partly made his heart as hard as it was. I don't know if you've ever thought about this before, but just because people saw the signs of God, it doesn't make them believers. That's why everybody that saw the crucifixion didn't immediately trust in Christ. 
In fact, it doesn't even make us prone to believe. If God reveals himself and there is no illuminating grace to mingle and work with that, then the heart just gets hard. It doesn't get softer. It gets harder. And this is why there was an old saying back in the days of the Puritans that the sun, the same sun that melts the wax, can harden the clay. Sometimes they say the same sun that melts the ice or softens the ice will harden the clay. And this is true. Sometimes it is the revelation of God that makes a heart hard. This is why you'll find Christ in the book of John talk to the Pharisees and say, because it's because I'm telling you the truth that you don't believe me. It's because I'm saying things that are true and valid that you have chosen not to believe me. So the reason for a hard heart is not a cruel God. It's rebellion. It's unbelief. All that to say, do not harden your heart. Do not harden your heart. Pharaoh chose to harden his heart and God hardened it. And there is some mystery to how the edges of those things meet. And as I said from this stage many times, I'm fine with God carrying some of that mystery. I'm uncomfortable as a finite person trying to draw the edges around God and perfectly explain how all the thermodynamics of a decision work, right? Do not harden your heart. And when he did, it began this train of plagues that would ruin everybody's trust in a false god, a small god. I want you to remember that God is not only judging Pharaoh in these moments that we're about to read, he's also judging and mocking the gods that they vaulted up and worshipped. The ones that they loved, the ones that they drew pictures on, the ones that they had holidays around, who were no gods at all. These plagues were not random. I grew up thinking that they were just kind of random plagues, falling at random moments for random reasons, but they're not. They're strategically placed plagues, mocking strategically vaulted gods. They had over 80 of them, which sounds like a lot. We have more today, I would argue. Let's go ahead and look at how this all starts, though. Go to chapter 7, verse 8 in the book of Exodus, and we're just going to jump in and read. Like I said, we're not going to go verse for verse. I am going to skip around a little bit, so keep this open before you. And if you don't have a Bible, you could either Google it or we'll have it up on the screen for you. It says this in chapter 7, verse 8. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Okay, here's the big idea. God is going to show that he is God and there are no other gods. And what he's doing is he's trying to verify their message and try to get them to dislodge themselves from the small gods that they, they've been serving for this whole time. There is no God but God. Now this snake, the word snake here is rendered viper. They loved cobras back then. If you know anything about Egypt or have watched a cartoon or a show on Egypt, there's always cobras everywhere and snakes everywhere. This was a loved and valued piece of creation to them. And they, it's likely that it did become a cobra. But then the magicians and the priests would come along 
and do something that's kind of mystifying. They throw down their sticks and they become snakes too. Listen, there have been a ton of theories on what's going on right here, okay? Some people say it was like illusion, like street illusion, like David Blaine, right? They throw a stick down, it becomes a snake. Listen, you're free to believe whatever you want. I personally... I, I'm submitting this, not teaching it. I think it's the occultic dark arts. I think it is something that is satanic. That was something that was worshipped back then. I, I just believe it's the devil, okay? I think the devil did it. <laughs> if you don't believe me, we can still be friends, right? Because the big idea here is that Aaron's staff would eat the other snakes as a sign of dominance. And what's interesting about that word swallowed, the snake swallowed the other snakes, is the only other other time that's found in the Bible is when the Red Sea swallowed the Egyptians as they pursued Israel, which is to again show dominance. Dominance is the key word here, right? Dominance, you want to keep that in mind. And after watching all of this, Pharaoh says, no, I'm good. I'm not really buying it. His heart gets cold and dark, and hard. And for the next four chapters, you're going to find one pattern. Moses and Aaron do what they were commanded to do. They show signs, something miraculous happened, and then Pharaoh just gets colder, and harder, and darker, over, and over, and over again. And and again, this is a part of the Bible that finds a bunch of protests, the plagues, because it seems indiscriminate. It seems like a punishment that that is unwieldy, we imagine that it's, it's just blistering and just hitting and destroying the mean Egyptians. But what about the kids? What about the Egyptians that would have made a good neighbor? The ones that were well-behaved? Maybe the ones that liked Israel? What, what, what about those guys? And so it seems like a difficult piece of passage. It seems cruel, like bad marketing for God, and we don't really know what to do with it. Let me just say, and we're going to talk about this more next week, but let me just say, let's be careful with passages like this. We will be tempted to judge the works of God and the actions and the plan of God, and we usually judge it through a filter that sees sin is small and God's glory is smaller. We see our sin is tiny and God's glory is tiny. And so it leaves us supposing that we would be more noble and more discerning than a sovereign God. We're just, we'd be a better sovereign than God would be. So let's be careful with that. Paul actually has to talk to the Romans in the same way. Romans 9, again, stay where you're at. He says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. The truth is, if you want the plagues to be fair, if we want them to be fair, it would wipe everybody out. Not just Egypt, but Israel as well. That would be fair, right? It's not just the Egyptians that deserve destruction. Everyone on earth would have deserved this destruction. After all, it's not like the Israelites were more well-behaved than the Egyptians. Come on. This isn't a story of heroes and villains here. Not all the Israelites even worship God. A lot of these Israelites worship the same gods that the Egyptians did. Let's remember that they were in slavery for 430 years. It didn't even take our country 250 years to jettison some of the underpinnings that we had. 430 years is a long time. Israel was not preserved because God found merit in them. They were saved because God had a covenant with them. God had a covenant. And as we've been looking at from week to week to week, God is a promise maker and God is a promise keeper. It's the covenant that preserved them. 
And this is where we have a shot straight through to the gospel and aligned to our lives today, right? We also, as God's people, escape the plagues of death and destruction and separation from a good God. Not because, not because of any merit found in us, but because of a covenant that is anchored in the person of Christ. That's why Paul says repeatedly, especially in places like Ephesians, that it is not by our merit, our performance, our behavior, that God loves us so deeply. It's because of the work of Christ. It's because of God's grace on us. Grace meaning a good favor given to us totally despite us, something we don't deserve, something we don't. By the way, that's not so fair either, is it? I mean, mercy at its face is people not getting what they do deserve. Grace is people getting what they do not deserve. And before we think, well, then God must not be just, it's because Jesus received what we deserved, and he did not deserve what he got. So it's in Christ that this is both just, merciful, fair, graceful, it's all. So yes, the plagues land on Egypt, who sinned against the holy God, and yes, Israel did not get what they deserved. It's the best way to look at these plagues. And as we jump into the plagues, you got to know I'm not really super interested in doing a deep nerd dive on every single individual plague. You would all hate me. That's why we're also not going to take every week to do a different commandment as we march through Exodus. We're marching quickly through Exodus, meaning it's only going to take us 20 weeks. We're not going to spend two years on this, right? And besides, I just want to point out one big thing about the plagues, and that's the fact that they're strategically mocking certain gods. And that's going to be important for how we live our normal lives today, just to understand that the plagues are not random, right? Look in your Bible at Exodus 7, verse 19. This will be a good example of what I'm talking about. This is where the Nile turns into blood. Verse 19, the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the rivers, their canals, and their ponds, and all the pools of water, so that they may become blood And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. That's gross, right? So blood, water everywhere. What does that even mean? Why is that even happening? It just sounds weird, right? But you'd have to understand how they looked at the Nile. They worshipped the Nile. It was one of the things they worshipped because the Nile was a provider for them. It was their source of water, irrigation, food, transportation. The market was pushed by the Nile. It was the center of their economy. It would be like for us today, the internet shutting down, food supply shutting down, and the stock market shutting down all at the same time, right? That's what it would be like today. And God was mocking it by taking this thing that was a provider and not letting it provide anymore. And here was the result behind that. Pharaoh doesn't care. Pharaoh doesn't budge. The only thing that changes is his heart's getting a little colder, a little darker, a little harder. So God pivots, and he goes to the second plague, frogs, right? And I remember growing up as a kid, as a brand new Christian, or maybe even as a kid before I was a Christian, reading about this, and not being able to really understand what was going on, but thinking, frogs, I mean, is that really a plague? I mean, one frog, not a big deal. Ten frogs, I'm starting to get a little creeped out. I'm at least asking questions, right? Why are there so many frogs, ten being a lot? But millions of frogs all over the place? That's just weird. It doesn't make any sense. Until you realize, and we'll just read it. Verse 3 in chapter 8. Exodus 8, verse 3. The Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house 
and into your bedroom. That's where we have problems, right? They're not outside where they belong. Now they're in your room. And on your bed, come on now, and into the houses of your servants and your people and into your ovens and your kneading bowls, the frogs shall come up on you and on your people and all your servants. This is not just an inconvenience. This is strategic. You see, the frog was worshipped as an idol or as an icon of fertility. Fertility. And so this is mocking that. You couldn't kill frogs back in Egypt because it was such a, a, a beautiful creature to them. So God mocks them by reproducing so many frogs that it's not a blessing anymore. It's a curse. He's flexing right here. And what is the result of this? Pharaoh doesn't care. His heart gets colder. It gets harder. It gets darker. So God pivots to the third one, gnats. And by the way, gnats, the word for this in your Bible, could be lice, it could be mosquitoes. Again, you can believe whatever you want about that. Words are weird whenever they translate through thousands of years to an ancient language like that, to English today. Gnats, I don't know that that's real serious. I don't know that's freaking me out too bad. A bunch of mosquitoes, probably a little different. Lice, much different, right? Exodus 8, 17. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth. So he just hits the ground with his staff. And there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. They would worship the earth as a provider, somewhat like the Nile, as a provider, as something that was going to bring them provision. And so what they do is they strike it, and even the dust of this earth that is supposed to be bringing provision brings nothing but a curse to them. And it's at this point that the magicians themselves start to pivot. Right here in this moment. Verse 19, then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. Up to this point they were probably thinking, can we pull that off? We could pull that off. We could at least make it look like we're pulling it off, right? But here there is no mistaking. This is the finger of God. We weren't sure, Pharaoh. Now we're sure. This is an issue. But it says this, but Pharaoh's heart was hardened. He would not listen to them. God knew this, of course, so he goes to the next one, flies, flies. Now, some will say that this is actually a scarab beetle, which they fly, right? A lot of translators will translate this to a scarab beetle because of the way the word is wound up. But this is what it says in verse 21. I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your houses, and the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies and also on the ground on which they stand. Okay, this, the scarab beetle and the fly were seen as symbols of resurrection. Don't ask me why. I didn't define it. I wasn't in the room when this was decided. But it was resurrection. New life was the idea. And so what does he do? He mocks it. Mocks it. Oh, you like that so much? Here's a bunch of them. Not so much of a blessing anymore, is it? Not so much. But here's what's most interesting about this plague. This is where we start to see a division a distinction between the people of God and the people of Egypt. It says this in the 22nd verse, or the, yeah, the 22nd verse of Exodus 8. But on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen. That's where the Israelites were living, right there in Egypt. It's like a suburb of Egypt. Where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there. That you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Thus I will put a division between my people and your people. Interesting. This is foreshadowing, by the way. You're supposed to pick up on that. This distinction of where the plagues fall and where the plagues will not fall. 
that God will protect his people. Even though plagues swarm and they crush everybody in sight, they will not crush his people. You're supposed to pick up on that. And then he pivots because, predictably, Pharaoh's heart gets harder and harder. And he goes to livestock. Exodus 9, verse 3. Behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague because it's getting worse and worse. You can tell. These are escalating. Upon your livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt. So that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. Livestock back then was seen as a symbol of prosperity and beauty. If you had livestock, you were living large, right? It was a big sign of I have made it. This is beautiful. This is prosperous. So what does he do? Strategic. It's strategic. What you worship as a symbol of prosperity is now rotting in the streets. Not so prosperous. Not so beautiful anymore. Well, Pharaoh doesn't care. His heart gets harder and colder. So we go to boils. Boils. Exodus 9, verse 10. So they took soot from the kiln and stood before Pharaoh, and Moses threw it in the air. And it became boils, breaking out in sores on man and beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils. For the boils came up on the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. This was a sign of mockery against the magicians, actually. Right? What they would do a lot of times whenever they were doing sleights of hand and uh, um, magic tricks is they would take dust or they would um, throw it in the air or different powder colors or they would make smoke, smoke and mirrors, right? They were doing things to be impressive and so God is mocking them. And the boils affected the magicians as much as they affected anybody. So this was a mockery of their theatrics and Pharaoh still has a cold and dark and heavy heart. So we go to hail, Right? I know hail's not a big deal here. Unless you were here a few years ago, I don't know if y'all remember that, that one big hailstorm we had. Everyone thought it was the end of the world, and it was only like that big. I'm from West Texas, so I'm from Tornado Alley, and some of that hail can get to where it's no joke. You better find some shelter. It's like baseballs being chunked at the earth, right? But this was the worst hailstorm in human history. It is destroying everything. Exodus 9, verse 22. Then the Lord said to Moses... Stretch out your hand toward heaven so that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt, on man and beast and every plant of the field in the land of Egypt. Then Moses stretched out his staff toward heaven and the Lord sent thunder and hail and fire ran down to earth. And the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. There was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail. Very heavy hail. Such had never been in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. The hail struck down everything that was in the field. In all the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and the hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hail. That's a pretty descriptive moment right there. And that's because most of the 80 gods that they would worship, 80 plus gods, were for weather, just needing good weather. They needed good weather. It's, a, it's an agrarian society. They wanted good weather. So what does God do? He says, I dominate even that. I dominate even those small gods. So this would be the worst hailstorm in history. And it's actually here that we see a false repentance from Pharaoh. He pivots, but not really. 
He does this in verse 27. Then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, This time I have sinned. The Lord is right. He is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. But as soon as the hail stopped, he changed his mind. Why? Heart's cold and dark and hard. So he goes to locusts. I mean, you're supposed to be like, come on. That's what you're supposed to feel like. Not because I'm taking so long to preach it, but because look how they'd have to live through this. No trees left, no crops left. The Nile's not behaving like the Nile used to. There's still dead frogs and camels laying around. Everything is weird. It's a weird season to be an Egyptian. You're supposed to be able to where you just throw your hands up and say, what, what is going on? When is this going to change? Locusts. Exodus 10, verse 13. So Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt, and the Lord brought an east wind upon the land all that day and all that night. When it was morning, the east wind had brought the locusts. The locusts came up over all the land of Egypt and settled on the whole country of Egypt. Such a dense swarm of locusts as had never been before, nor ever will be again. Think about that. Not even since then has something like this happened. They covered the face of the whole land so that the land was darkened, and they ate all the plants in the land and all the fruit of the trees that, had, that the hail had left. Not a green thing remained, neither tree nor plant of the field, through all the land of Egypt. This is because they worshipped again the earth and its ability to produce the yield of the earth. And God is going to shame the gods of the field that were worshipped so that crops would come in because no longer will they. This place is decimated. Egypt is trashed. And Pharaoh's heart's not changing. It's not changing. So then the ninth one comes. This is the ninth plague. This is the one of darkness, Exodus 10. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. Listen, no cell phone lights, no, no, none of the, no light switches, no headlamps on your car, nothing. Darkness meant something different back then than it does today, right? For three days it was like this. It says in the next verse, they did not see one another. Nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. It's so dark, they're not getting out of bed. That's how dark it is. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Interesting. One of the biggest gods that Egypt would worship in its whole time as a nation is the sun. The sun. And God says, I have dominion and mastery even over that. Even over the sun. Now, darkness was terrifying for the average Egyptian. It was the realm of the dead. I mean, your average Egyptian is living a nightmare right now because the one God they could always count on rising in the east and setting in the west is no longer, no longer. And all they have is a living, terrifying nightmare of darkness for three days. And again, we're supposed to pick up on that. Right? which is a forecast of a deeper darkness that would occupy that space of time between the cross and the empty tomb. The place where the cosmos was at its darkest. All these plagues, strategic statements on what Egypt put their trust in, none of them were random. None of them were random. It's not like God was thinking, well, we've done frogs. We did put gnats and flies together, which wasn't super creative, so let's come up with something a little, hail, I got it, hail. It wasn't random, like he was just kind of shooting from the hip. There was a strategy in this. And everyone would have recognized that their small gods were collapsing. 
Everything they trusted in was all of a sudden silent, not providing anymore, not prosperous anymore, not authoritative even in the least. And everyone would have the same decision that Pharaoh would have. Do I worship this God? Do I trust in this God? Or do I allow my heart to get heavier and colder and harder and darker? Back to the big question for us. Who are we really tempted to worship and serve and glorify as God in our lives? What are we really tempted to worship and serve and glorify as a God in our lives? Let me ask you differently. What would devastate you if it was ruined or removed? I don't mean make you sad. I mean make you not want to live anymore. What would it take? I'm sure it's not the Nile River for you, right? I'm sure it's not livestock for you, but it's going to be something. Might be your career, might be your spouse, might be your kids. Something taken. Of course, it would make you sad. But would it make you want to not ever wake up again? Would it do that? It might be a small God. I think some of us, it might be hard for us to come up with something. I mean, I ask myself the same questions I ask you. And I'd sit there and think, and I thought, well, I, I don't know. I mean, I'd be tremendously sad. I might sink into a depression for sure if some things were taken from me. But not want to exist anymore? Not want to live anymore? I don't know about that. Here's an easier way of maybe trying to diagnose what that could be in your life. What makes you angriest when it is taken away? What makes you anxious? What makes you lose sleep, get sick to your stomach, be on a medication for your anxiety or your anger? What is it that is evoking so much deep emotion in you? When it is plagued, removed, destroyed. Listen, I've been with grieving widows who they lost their husband. And you can tell years later, they lost a little bit more than their husband. I've been with men who have lost their jobs. And you can tell in the weeks following that they were wrecked by it. And they lost a little bit more than a job. Right? And I've seen people not do well on an MCAT and just come apart at the seams, right? Cancer diagnosis, you fill in the blank. How we handle what is plagued in our life might reveal where we have a small God that is set up shop. There's just no hiding it. I've lost things. I've lost relationships. I've lost money and opportunities to realize that I was a little too wrecked by that, that there is an edge and a line between my sadness and something very different, and I've definitely crossed it. I am undone by what has been taken from me. Maybe I've built a small God in my life too. This thing that told me I would be complete if I had them, it incomplete if I lost them. Listen, we're no different from Israel. We are still in the business of attaching our affections to false gods. We're still in the business, and God is still in the business of wrecking those gods. So listen, there's room for us to repent in this. Oh, man. <laughs> the bats. The bats. Listen, if you're a guest here, we haven't named them yet, but we do have bats that live up in the rafters. And once every couple years they come out and they greet us, right? And of course it's on the week that we talk about plagues, right? <laughs> Don't lose the irony of that. <laughs> We go above and beyond to make our services memorable for you. <laughs> and you'll remember this for the rest of your life. 
no, we're finished with this. We're finished with this sermon. Um, so let's see if we could just focus on the last two minutes. We have room to repent in a sermon like this. There's something that God might be putting his finger on that you have in your life because you think that God is not going to get it done. Right? God is not satisfying enough for you. He's not glorious enough. He's not bringing the contentment, so you need something else to pick up the slack. And over time, you've pinned more and increasing amount of affection to it, to where if it was ever removed, if hail ever hit it, if it was ever struck down, you would come apart. You wouldn't want to live another day. And this actually requires repentance of saying, God, you are not enough. You're really not who you say you are. You're not a promise keeper. You're not content. And listen, if you're in community with somebody, whether you're in a missional community here or you just have a tight relationship, you need to know that your friend cannot see what they cannot live without. You have to help them. We can't see it very well in our own lives. Other people have to kind of speak in and help us with that. What is lacking in their theology of who God is? Because we're a people that are constantly rearranging the deck furniture of our lives, right? God is in the center until we shove him aside and put something else there. And then we're always constantly rearranging these things. you got to help your friends with that. And listen, we live in a city where plagues ravage people. I mean, what did the pandemic do? And that was, that was a shadow of a shadow of what these plagues are. But as far as our memory and modern history, it's a pretty serious plague, right? But what did you see? Marriages came undone. You saw people commit suicide. You, see, you saw all kinds of things because something was taken away. Their Nile River was taken away. Their livestock was taken away. Their light was taken away. And really what was happening is one of the gods they worshipped was likely taken away. Listen, Knoxville desperately needs a bigger god. Knoxville desperately does. One who rules over all the handmade gods of the human heart. And as God's church, we're missionaries that are carrying the hope that we have to people who desperately need to hear it. And let me just say this to you. If you're here and you do not love Jesus, do not know Jesus, maybe you're skeptic, maybe you're just checking things out or if you're watching and that's the case, let me just say it's just a matter of time before the small God that you serve is exhausted and becomes silent and powerless right before your eyes. And that's not a sign of cruelty. That's a sign of God's goodness to you that that would happen. That's a sign of goodness. Your deepest, most significant point of contentment and satisfaction is found where God is most glorious in your life. Those don't exist far apart. Where God is most glorious, most fascinating, most intoxicating in your life, that is where you are most satisfied. That is where you are most content. Sometimes we see it as a cruelty when God removes something from our life. When sometimes, I'll be honest with you, it's just him being very sweet and kind to you. Sometimes just being very sweet and kind to you. So let's do this. Let's pray, and we will go into a time of singing. And what we'll do is we'll keep the house lights on. I don't know if Charlie's back here yet or the team when they come up. We'll keep the lights on because I know if we turn the lights off, all you'll be thinking about are the bats. I'm next. That bat's going to get me. He's going to zap me, and he's probably carrying COVID. I don't think any of the bats here carry COVID, right? But we'll keep the lights on. If you're uncomfortable and you're like, no, I'm not doing it. Sorry, I can't. <laughs> then I hope you have a great 4th of July. <laughs> and we'll see you next week after we've come back and killed all the bats. 
So let me pray for you, and uh, we will go on with the service. Father, we thank you for being so good and so kind to us. Go ahead and stand with me. We'll actually use this as an opportunity to take communion as well. And by the way, <clears throat> if you are here and you are a Christian, we invite you to take this point of communion. If you didn't grab one of these, Jake is right here. He'll hand you one. Um, you just raise your hand. You don't have to be a part of Legacy to take this. If you love Jesus and you're a part of his church, we invite you into this moment. If you're just checking things out, right, don't worry about this. Don't worry about this. I would submit that instead of taking this, you take Christ. You take seriously the admonition I made that the, the, the God that you have in your life or multiple ones will fail. But there is one promise maker who is actually also a promise keeper. And we know it because of the blood on the cross and the absence of a body in the tomb. He is a promise keeper. He is a covenant guarding promise keeper. So Father, we thank you for this time that we get to celebrate through communion. That we get to celebrate through song. That, Father, even on a day like Independence Day, as we look at the independence of a nation, we actually get to celebrate the independence of our souls, God. That you came for a bigger people and rescued us from a more cruel taskmaster, from even Pharaoh, dragging us not through a Red Sea but through death itself, as we follow someone much more impressive than Moses, who is Christ himself, our bread, our lamb, our guiding light, our fire, our Sabbath rest. So, Father, as we read a passage like this, we don't have to work hard to make it come alive off of a Sunday school coloring sheet. This has direct application to my life and to our lives. We all have a sort of Nile River that we worship. We all have something that if it was removed or destroyed would not just make us sad or even tremendously sad, but would ruin us. Lord, that you out of your kindness would bring us face to face with whatever that is and that we would sacrifice it and put it at the foot of the cross. So Lord, as we take this bread, which is symbolic of your body, we do so in remembrance of you. In remembrance of you, Father, because you took something you did not deserve. And because of that, we have mercy. You took pain, judgment, and wrath that was supposed to fall on me. And it wasn't fair. But what Jesus did was just, and now I get to taste mercy. Because you are a good God. And you can execute love, justice, mercy, and grace all at the same time. So we take this bread in remembrance of you. Go ahead and take the bread. And Lord, we thank you for this fact that the blood of your son, it cleanses us. Not just of boils or lice or mosquito or hail damage or any of the things, but death itself. It cleanses us from sin and destruction. That your blood is powerful enough to undo addictions, undo just insanity, undo boredom. That the blood of Christ can change us, literally change us from the inside out. So we do this in remembrance of you. That it wasn't just mercy that came where we did not get what we should have gotten. But this also celebrates that we have grace where we got what we should not have gotten. Your favor, your love, your adoring eye, and your protected covenant. So we take this in remembrance of you as well. Go ahead and take the juice. So, Lord, we thank you and we pray that as we sing in the short amount of time we have left and that as we leave and we celebrate this day of independence, 
Father, that firmly on the, on the dashboard of our minds today, we would keep what is it that is competing with you? Where do I keep rearranging the deck furniture of my own life to make room for something that is bigger than it should be? That we would come face to face with it and then submit it to you, Lord. Lord, I know that the Christian's growth is continually putting you in the middle of our heart, the throne of our heart where you belong. Help us with the power of your spirit. Do that today. Do that today. And I pray for those who are listening or who are watching that are far from you. Lord, that they would grow disgusted with their false gods and disgusted with the the discontented nature of their life, just like the Egyptians would have been here as they look on the ruin of everything that is around them, everything that they trusted in coming completely apart. And then they cry out upon you. That today would be the day of new life. Not just here, but in our city. So Lord, we love you and we thank you.